Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Save Your Sanity. This is an exciting interview today because we're going to be talking about not only toxic relationships at home, but in the workplace. And many times you can be wounded by having to go to work and knowing you're in a toxic relationship. So there are so many things. My guest today is Kristen Ungerbook, and we are going to be discussing his book, 22 Talk Shifts, and finding out what can you do about a toxic workplace. Talk soon. Welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are you living with the chaos, confusion, and uncertainty that a toxic person loves to create? Is a partner, parent, ex, sibling, child, or coworker causing you to second-guess yourself? That can be crazy-making. I'm here to help you save your sanity. So let's get down to it and figure some things out now. Stay tuned. Welcome to Save Your Sanity. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. I'm so glad you're here. If you've just found us, I'm delighted that you did. And if you're returning, I'm glad you found value and came back. We're always talking about how to recognize and recover from, rebuild your life after a toxic relationship, wherever it happens. If you'd like to support the program, please do. It helps to keep the show on the air for you and other people. You go to patreon.com slash Save Your Sanity, patreon.com slash Save Your Sanity. Today, my guest is Christian Ungerbach, and he is an amazing person who has done so much in the workplace and is the author of this new book, which I am happy to have a, com- a copy of. It is 22 Talk Shifts Tools for transformational leaders, just like you can see behind him. So um, welcome to the program, Christian. Thank you very much for the invitation, Dr. Shaler. Well, I'm delighted to to be able to talk about this because so frequently we talk about at-home relationships. And so to have an expert who can talk more about toxic relationships in the workplace is great. But you've had some personal experiences with toxic relationships too, I hear. Can you share a little bit about that as your background? Well, so I, I really wrote the book, kind of the, the original thought of the book four or five years ago was how can I reach toxic bosses. And the challenge is that any book about toxic bosses, probably the toxic bosses aren't reading that book. right? And no. so, so I was thinking, how can we get uh, these tools into the workplace? So I was a CEO of a software company. In fact, admittedly, there was probably some of my employees probably, I don't know what they would characterize me as a toxic boss, but I was a very a difficult, aggressive, uh, demanding boss myself. So I said, mm-hmm. in fact, I'm recovered. Uh, and then I also worked for, um, I don't like to use the word toxic boss because I found that uh, it, when I when I called someone else uh, toxic in a relationship, I felt over time, it actually kind of left me still in the victim mode. Uh, so, but let's say by, by the, the definition of your listeners, my boss was probably, uh, you know, we certainly had a toxic relationship. Let's say, let's leave it at that. 
And, um, and so when I wrote the book, I feel like, well, the reality is, is I wanted to write a book that would also help people in toxic relationships. Um, so interestingly, many of our readers are actually, even some are women who are retired and they're, they're using the book, giving it to their, you know, 40, 50 year old children, uh, saying, Hey, here's a book that's about communication that applies to any relationship. But if someone's career focused like the person I was, uh, it's probably unlikely that they're going to pick up a book about relationship communication. But what if there was a leadership book that they could say, hey, I'm going to get a hold of this to help me in my career. And oh, by the way, as I move through it, I'm going to learn a lot of the same principles that you would learn in kind of a relationship communication book. So that's really what makes uh, the book unique. Um, so much so that it's one of the few books that's actually rated number one in fatherhood, as well as organizational change and communication and management and parenting teenagers. So it's really kind of crosses both categories. Excellent. So have you had toxic relationships in your own life outside of the workplace? Uh, my most difficult relationship was certainly with, uh, was certainly with my father. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, uh, and um, we, I, I think that probably... For many years, I would have classified my father as a narcissist, um, and I, uh, I think that so many, we, so often, we throw these words around. And and I, I felt that actually it wasn't until I kind of let go of that word that I started to actually be a little bit more free of it. And um, honestly, the the day that uh, so I've had a very difficult relationship with my father going back to when I was a teenager, and the day that the book was published, I actually. I read it at my mother's grave um, because I I knew that if she had had these tools, then we would have actually all been happier husbands and happier wives. Probably would have, I probably would have avoided my own divorce. Um, But I called my father and asked him to join me for lunch that day. And and he came and he brought some sandwiches from the gas station. He's almost 80 years old. And I remember it just came out of me. I said that, what would it like, what would it be like if we were friends? And for the first time, he said, he said that, you know, that would be nice. And, uh, and for the first time that night, we actually hung out and did the kinds of things that friends would do. Mm. And so it's been admittedly like the journey for the last four or five years. Um, I was CEO of this company and uh, kind of basically walked out. Um, uh, my father was the owner of that company. Oh. So uh uh, I had worked with him for many years and, you know, we had had wild success. I mean, we created probably, well, at least a hundred million dollars in shareholder value while I was CEO. Uh, and ultimately like just the, the conflict between the two of us was, was just, it was eating me up, but it was also not, it wasn't healthy for continued growth within the company. And, um, and then the day that I left, um, it was shortly after that, I found myself at the YMCA signing up for a gym membership. And they asked me, who's my, who's your emergency contact? And I broke down crying because I, oh. I had no one. Uh, so I had basically walked away from my identity as CEO of this company. Um, and then, you know, weeks later, my wife walked out on me. So I was, I was literally thinking I was this great leader, yet no one, no one wanted to follow. And so I kind of set aside all the business books and uh, hung out with some yeah, more people from the marriage counseling community and even like the addiction community, like just, just kind of like I, I went, I purposely surrounded myself by all the people that I would have judged as weird or far out back when I was a CEO. 
And uh, now I just call them people from California. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the, uh, I say that with, uh, I say that with actually the very, I, I, so it was anyway, that this was really, I felt that part of my mission, I knew that I was going to write a book when I did all this kind of research. Um, but I felt part of my mission was to take some of those things outside of that world and put them in terms that business leaders and CEOs and maybe aggressive leaders like I once was could actually adopt. Um, mm-hmm. And that was really, I think, what makes this book and, and certainly the journey I've been on unique. Well, I don't know quite how to take all of that, being certainly um, having been trained as a psychotherapist and living in California. Yeah, I don't know exactly how to take all that, but let's move on. I want everyone to know a little bit about where they can find you and a little more about you. So Kristen Ungerbach is a leadership communication expert, a keynote speaker, and former CEO, as he said, of a global tech company. And prior to exiting corporate life at the tender age of 42, (laughs) he was CEO of one of the larger family-owned software companies in the world. So he's written this book, and he wants to help people build better lives and relationships by shifting their words. So we're going to go more deeply into that. You can find Krista at simply Krista.com. And remember, all of this is in the show notes below. So you don't have to remember. You can focus entirely on hearing the wisdom that he has to share. So Toxic relationships happen everywhere, and you say that you tended to be aggressive. Many times people tend to be aggressive because of childhood trauma, and you are talking about trauma that you had in the relationship with your father, and of course the loss of your mother and and several things that had happened could have played into that. But it also happens not just in family-owned businesses, but in Fortune 500 and 100 companies as well. So... um What's your experience with seeing these issues? I'd like to break it down, Krista, into seeing them and then whether or not you do anything about them as a CEO. And what are the things that get in the way of that? You know, certainly my experience, I've written a book about it's called work, um, Wrestling Rhinos, Conquering Conflict in the Wilds of Work. So I have some experiences, but I'm really interested to hear what your experience is from the CEO side. So do you actually see the toxic relationships that are occurring in the company? Or do people not bother you with that information? Do they try and handle it in HR or, or department heads? What did you see? I, I think that from a CEO, usually it's probably those kind of things probably get filtered. Um, you know, people don't want, unless there are people who have toxic relationships immediately one level below me, I, I sense that most of those things uh, get filtered out before they would come to the CEO because people don't really want to, um, unless there's something where we're going to lose some great employees, uh, people don't really want to, we only want to talk about people's performance. They're not making their numbers, right? And so, uh, and admittedly, our company is, we weren't so large that so we had a huge HR department. We had about 200 in, in the company. I'm still an owner now, has about 500 employees. So it's kind of a, a large, small business, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, you know, part of that question is that, and you brought it up so perfectly, unless it affects the bottom line, I'm not going to hear about it. And But the question then is, did you offer training to people to know how to deal with it online? I mean, 
as as a person that is not able to make decisions in the company, did you train people to deal with interpersonal issues and toxicity, conflict management? Well, I would say, you know, we were fortunate that we had a, a very strong culture, like 99.3% employee engagement. So we were one of those companies mm-hmm. that was winning the, you know, top workplace awards. Right. So admittedly, I probably actually, where I found it was most useful to, is whenever someone left the organization, you know, I always, like most HR people, say people don't leave boss, people don't leave jobs, they leave bosses, right? And so my first question and all the leaders in our organization were trained to say, okay, did this person really leave because they got a better opportunity or did they leave because of a conflict with their boss? Right. And so let's say to, to that degree, that's how we rooted out potential leadership issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and admittedly, you know, working in a smaller organization where we don't have a huge HR department, uh, that was probably the good quick rule of thumb for us to kind of identify if there were maybe leadership issues. Mm-hmm. Um, as a small organization, admittedly, we didn't invest nearly as much in training as I probably would have liked uh, as CEO. Um, but it, it, admittedly, I also found that a lot of leadership training was, uh, which is part of the reason why I wrote the book, is it's, I had been to some leadership training. And it was really kind of touchy-feely, like, I want, especially we were a software company, I want things that are really practical. Say this, not that, mm-hmm. you know? And I even found this after the, you know, after I left as CEO, the challenge is my heart was in the right place. I wanted to build a company that gave most of the financial gains back to our employees. Uh, and the challenge is that I didn't realize until after I left that while my heart was in the right place, my words were not. And the challenge is in all these rooms and, you know, when I was going in on my walkabout, if you will, to try to discover these tools, you know, many people say, well, if you change from the inside, then, then like these words will just naturally come out. Like your, your behavior is going to change. And I agree there's a lot of truth to that. But if you take the opposite, if I change my heart and I'm, everything in my mind is in the right place, but I'm still speaking the words mm-hmm. because words are such a habit. Mm-hmm. You know, if, I'm, if I haven't changed my words, then people can't see what's in my heart or what's in my mind. Okay, let's just settle in there for a minute, because whether you're in a toxic relationship in any location, I 100% agree with you, right? But so frequently what happens is hearts are cold, hearts are encased, heart has been displaced. Mm -hmm. And so the words are always harsh. They're always difficult. They're always seemingly uncaring. And what's in it for me, right? (laughs) So I so agree with you because the words then emanate from the experience of the heart and from the experience of the mind how do I deal with this situation and what is the result that I want? You know, I remember Krista, I was talking to my grandson when he was graduating from high school and I said to him, here's something that is really important in my opinion for you to consider that before you make any decision or more, you enter into a conversation, you ask, what do I want as a result of this exchange? whether that's an exchange of words, exchange of time, energy or skill for money, what do I want as a result of this exchange? And then the next question is, and it would fit into your context perfectly, what words do I need to use in order to give that voice? Yeah. 
So that fits in the model that you're talking about. So talk shifts, great name, <laughs> are, I might have said this, but now I know better and I'm going to say that. I might have had this mindset, I need to shift it into something that will actually get me the results in life as well as in work that I want. So tell me how you developed the idea of talk shifts. Most of it was really traveling to you know all of these different workshops and reading and then really practicing it in my own life, uh, but really trying to take these things into really simple fill in the blanks phrases and questions that we can ask ourselves. I, I had part of it was also informed. I had the opportunity to learn to learn to lead and l- learn French and German as an adult. Mm-hmm. So I, I applied some of the things that these, you know, some of the best French and German teachers use to teach me new language. So, well, what can we use that to teach people mm-hmm. new English words? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing is, even though I actually was probably a more emotionally intelligent speaker in French, and, and I'd say German, I don't know if it's possible to be. <laughs> German is a very difficult language in terms of very direct. Um, but, um, but I never actually translated that back into my native language, English, because it's such a habit. Mm-hmm. But I had one story happened recently, like, so I just recently got married, and it was about um, three weeks before I got married. My wife, she's a pretty successful executive herself at a software company. And it was Friday night. We had a couple glasses of wine. And she said, hey, um, do you think I'm slow? And we had had a couple glasses of wine. I was like, I know enough to like, you know, put a pin in that one. Let's not talk about that one right now. It will ruin the evening. Or at least not go direct. (laughs) Yeah. So the next day I asked her, hey, what did you mean by that? And she goes, well, you ask me, does that make sense a lot? Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, well, back in like when I was in my early 20s, one of my mentors, I was in IT and he said, hey, when you're in, in meetings with business people, uh, just ask him, does that make sense? That way, you know, if you're kind of speaking a bunch of technology jargon and no one right. knows what you're talking about. So I just fell into this habit. And so she said, well, you ask me that a lot. And I was like, well, how frequently? She said, well, how about this? I'll just give you a little signal. And I was like, well, count it off. Like, and over the course of like two days, we had gotten to 30 already. Oh, dear. And and so we made a game out of it. I was like, well, first I said, well, the talk shift is when I say, does that make sense? It's not about whether, you know, whether I I think you don't understand me. It's like, am I making sense? So a subtle shift to the words was it really was I was concerned that I wasn't making sense, not that she was slow. But the interesting thing is we created a habit like one, two, three, and we're laughing about it. But 30 times in two or three days, I'm still, you know, so it's just an example of how difficult it is to break a habit. And I had someone helping me, notifying me every time. But then the last thing, and I think this is where sometimes with toxic relationships, it fits in. So we've been dating for 18 months. And here she was saying she was starting to doubt whether I thought that she was intelligent and maybe at some level, even doubting whether she is intelligent simply because I had a habit that some mentor of mine, when I was 22 years old said, Hey, when you're in a meeting with business people ask, does that make sense? So how often are these things happening in our lives and leading to kind of erosion in our relationships? Um, when, when sometimes just a little bit of communication and a little subtle shift can make a difference. Such a great example because of the double-sided nature of the question. 
You know, uh, certainly a mentor might have said, you know, clarify that your message is coming across and say, does that make sense to you? Like, am I doing a good job of explaining it? But certainly from the perspective of the listener, it could be, well, are you bright enough to get it? Right. And that shift, as you say, is critical to our having more effective communication. So what did you replace it with? Well, we now laugh about it. So we say, whenever I say, does that make sense? Usually I'll get like halfway through and she goes, yes, you are making sense. And so we, I do think a lot of the talk shifts sometimes, especially, you know, if you're in a relationship that hasn't gotten to a point where it's toxic, kind of being playful with it and like creating a game out of it. You know, I think that's really a, a, a healthy technique. Sure. Well, you're upping the awareness and, and when these things become habitual, they just, go under the radar. So when someone says, oh, happened again, oh, and again, oh, and again, then we get some feedback that can say, oh, I had no idea how habitual that was. But I think you're right. When before relationships go sideways and people make assumptions, like my person I'm thinking of marrying doesn't think I'm smart, (laughs) And resentment begins to grow. Being able to ask a question directly as your fiance did to say, you know, you keep saying this to me and I'm wondering if you think I'm I'm lacking in intelligence. That's really great air clearing experience mm-hmm. and conversation. But many times people don't feel that they, they make an assumption if they have a lower self-esteem or have been beaten down by someone else, they will make the assumption that this is just more indication that I'm not bright or I'm not uh, capable of understanding. So it it is offering great awareness. So there's an example of a talk shift. Can you give us some more? I think one of the ones, there's probably two that I practice most frequently kind of in all relationships, um, both business and work is one is yeah, and as a psychologist, you've probably heard this that like behind anger is usually a deeper emotion. Uh, so whenever I uh, we have this with um, the ex husband of my wife, and you know, I naturally get so angry at the other person, but I always say like, what, what's the what's the emotion behind? Is it fear? Is it sadness? Is it guilt? Is it shame? I mean, and usually it's kind of a multiple choice. You know, there's not there's, those are kind of the four or five. And when we start to see people's anger and their behavior uh, that hurts us, that understanding that it's coming from a point of guilt, fear, shame, it starts to develop, a. we can develop some compassion within ourselves for those toxic people. So a big part of, for me, my father, my, my relationship with my father was around never telling me that I did a good job. And, and, and frankly, I mean, I, I graduated kind of at the top of my class. I had one of the best jobs coming out of college. I mean, I was very successful, like my whole career. And my father never said, good job. And at some point on the journey, I realized, well, uh, even after I asked him, I said, hey, you know what would really mean a lot to me is if you just looked at, you know, this contribution I made to our company, mm-hmm. and just, hey, thank you. I really appreciate what you did. And I gave him a couple of weeks to think about it. And he came back and he still was unable to say, hey, and, and how I developed compassion was I said, you know what, I'm thinking that's probably not about me. You know, if someone's unable yeah. to give just even, even even like a pretend compliment, like, hey, just add a boy. Just fake yeah, it. Fake it. Yeah. Yeah. 
then, then, then there's, that says more about them than it says about me. And so I think that I've always kind of taken my, that um, when, when we have people who are maybe these more toxic relationships, uh, I, I tend to, I have this theory that's coming in my next book uh, that, you know, we, we return it from, we return this anger or mean behavior with kindness. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so we get in these toxic relationships and we want to like, you know, poke at the person and make them kind of, you know, look at themselves in the mirror or whatever. And, and I think what happens is when we poke at those people, it actually causes them to poke back at us. Right. And it takes, yeah. it takes their, it takes their um, attention off their own behavior and it puts it on ours, how we are hurting them. But I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that, you know, each of us is, there's no one harder on ourselves than us. So if you're mean to me and I return it with kindness, then the only person in this relationship that you have to look at is yourself. And you will probably be a lot meaner to yourself than you will ever let me be. Right. Well, let, let me just catch this up with a few things. First of all, I'm not a practicing psychologist, but I'm trained as one. So let's just put that in the mix for those people who make distinctions like that. Oh. Secondly, I, I absolutely agree with you. I believe that anger is an arousal, not an emotion. It's an arousal that comes from other places and provides a, a physiological expression in the body that when it when we feel that someone is wronging us or afraid of us or whatever, or we should be afraid of them, the autonomic nervous system, the amygdala at the back of our brain goes alert, alert, alert. And when it does that, it says, oh, body's in danger. And people may not know this, Krista, but what's important to recognize when in anger or super excitement or many things that mimic it is that at that point, the body says, I need to survive. And it brings blood down to the heart and lungs in order to survive. Now, it brings it from the appendages. But what we forget is the head is an appendage. And so we're losing uh, fresh oxygen to clarify our thinking. But, you know, as Ashley Brilliant said, make a speech when you are angry and you'll make the best speech you'll ever regret. (laughs) And it is coming from that place. So I absolutely agree that there are underlying actual emotions that cause the arousal that we call anger. So important to see. Um, Also, though, in terms of compassion, I think that this is a value that you or I might hold. And therefore, as a result, we would treat anyone with more kindness. But I want to put a caveat in for those people who are in relationships with toxic people. Toxic people will have a predilection to see you being kind to them as an opportunity to take further advantage of you. So we have to be very clear in what we're talking about here. Be who you are by all means. If you're a kind person, be kind. But don't expect the other person, if they are habitually toxic or became that way as a result of childhood trauma, don't expect them to change because we're kind. Do it because it's who you are. How would you respond to that? I would totally agree. I mean, I think that if some, I tend to come from the approach that if I'm kind to someone and I do have a couple of people in our lives that, you know, uh, I have in, 
you know, been tried to been impeccable with like the kindness and how I communicate with those individuals. And they just, you know, they refuse to change or be reasonable. Uh, But my, my, my approach is that if that person hurts me as a result of my kindness, then that's on them. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm not gonna, and, and often you find that sometimes people kind of, they spout blame or, Oh, it's your fault. It's your fault. Like we understand, like, I go through this with my wife a lot from, you know, she has a difficult, like many do with their ex husbands. Right. I'm fortunate that I have a great relationship with my, uh, the, the mother of my children, but, uh, but it's, I think that it, it's important for us to have boundaries about, especially when we are in those, like we let those other people's words about us often like seep into ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. And so probably having those boundaries to say, Hey, that's what they think. And as you know, even when we know someone has some serious deep issues, um, probably stemming from childhood trauma or some kind of trauma, like that doesn't stop us from allowing their words to actually define us. And that's probably the first step is really letting, you know, say, hey, when that person says it's my fault or whatever, or that I'm not a good parent or not a good boss or not whatever, uh, to understand that those are not actually the words that define us. Really good points in there. And I think also that what we we want to understand that what other people think of us can be none of our business. <laughs> you know, it whatever someone is saying, always to remember that they're describing who they are and what their thought processes are, not necessarily anything about you. They're talking about their internal landscape and giving voice to it. And we don't want to give too much attention. Once we're an adult, I mean, obviously. We are tiny creatures who came into a home with no experience and we need those giants in our family to feed us and move us and take care of us and love us and like us. And when they don't, you know, we respond to that as it must be something that's wrong with me. So we can have some very habitual patterns, emotional patterns. But when we are in a healthy relationship or we become adult enough to realize that whatever someone is saying is their own internal landscape, even if they're blaming me or shaming me or whatever they're doing, it doesn't necessarily have any relationship to the truth about me. Yeah, exactly. Mm, so important. So give us another example of a talk shift. Um, I think that the, so this was one that is a simple one, but about a, apologizing. You know, I think that too often, so the, the, the German words for apology is, uh, ist tut mir leid which when translated literally is it causes me suffering. Mm-hmm. So you think like too often when we say, we, we say, sorry, it's like, oh, sorry. And so sometimes simply just kind of slowing down our words, looking at the person saying, I apologize, you know, versus sorry. Um, and so what I found is that, you know, often, you know, I, I, I tell a story in the book that like, one of the things I talk about is leadership and relationship. And so one of the things I have with my challenge with my father is, you know, in a toxic relationship, we often all, we want that other person to apologize, right? It's like, can't be any better unless that person apologizes. And admittedly, my father never apologized yet. We did get to the other side. And what I found is for me, the kind of the reframe was, you know, there was a, there was a story that uh, the Brooklyn bridge was built and like, 
P.T. Barnum when when it when it, the Brooklyn Bridge was uh, opened in like the early 1900s, people thought it wasn't going to stand, right? So P.T. Barnum famously took like 15 elephants across the Brooklyn Bridge, and the point was that you know broken relationships need bridges, and mm-hmm. you know we can we we kind of say, well, I'm not going to say sorry first because I don't want to let that person walk all over me. But if we make a choice, and there were specific times in my relationship with my ex-wife where I said, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that person walk all over me because maybe I'm the only one in this relationship who's strong enough to be walked on. Now, obviously, if you're in an abusive relationship, you, know, you have to be, but recognize that sometimes, sometimes kind of taking the lead and being the first to say, I'm sorry, and be showing kindness, returning anger with kindness is, is if you're making a conscious choice to let people walk on you because you're the one who's strong enough, then, then sometimes that's the bridge that can get a relationship to a, to a new level. Okay. We're going to take this one on <laughs> because I knew that you were going to not like this one. <laughs> well, I have to make a distinction for the audience, Krista, as you were expecting, because when you're with a habitually, destructive person, a difficult person, a toxic person. You know, I trademarked the term hijackal because I didn't want people using psychological diagnostic terms for things. A hijackal is a person who hijacks a relationship for their own purposes and then relentlessly scavenges it for power, status, and control. So if you're with a hijackal and you are apologizing they feel that they have you on the run. They feel that they could continue then to exert power. And so you may be in a stance of saying, no, who I am is a person who apologized, but it will not heal your relationship. We have to use the other word that you used. We have to have non-negotiable boundaries that when things are not your fault, you do not apologize for them. And if we don't do that, we are suggesting the other person is always right and I am always wrong. And that distinction has to be made between a compromising, collaborating, relatively healthy relationship in which this would be a great strategy. But when you're dealing with a person with hijackal tendencies, that is a, a situation where you are giving a wrong message, which basically says, you can walk on me, not because I'm strong or because I'm weak or whatever, but I am giving you power over me. And so we have to be clear about when that's a good strategy. Well, so the one thing I would say is that um, when I made the choice to let some individuals walk on me, I didn't feel like they had power over me. That was a choice that I made. And so I, I think that there is a subtle distinction here Yes, that it's about... And, and it's also not, a, I never say apologize for something that you, you, you don't mean, right? If you don't believe that you, uh, that said, I think that in every relationship, even in toxic relationships, and I, and I see that with my father, like I, I can, I go back and I can play through our conversations. And I know that I played uh, in most of even the worst conversations, I played at least 30 to 40% of my role in making sure that conversation was not very, uh, not, not very well, a toxic conversation. Right. Um, I, I started to fall because I felt that this 
defining other people as toxic just puts us in a box. I mean, it put me in a box. Like, okay, this person is toxic. They'll never change. So I'm in this box and I can't. And so I, I remember at one point I said, there is, there are no, there are, there are no toxic people. There's only toxic communication between two people. And so I'm not saying that there are people that unfortunately have so much trauma. They're just never going to get there. They're never going to go to therapy. Uh, but I suspect that, I mean, I see the word narcissist thrown around the internet. Like it's like, you know, I mean, everybody's a narcissist. Somebody just commented, I read my first three pages of my book and called me a narcissist. So like sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's because, you know, if we're with a narcissist then our filter is everybody in our lives is a narcissist, right? So I, I just, I, I, I think that it's really limiting for us to kind of at least not look at the possibility of how can, um, you know, potentially art changing our words, change the relationship. And the last thing I'll mention on this is I think, and I see this from like, I don't know, there's like a thousand comments on the, the thing in the book uh, on Facebook. And one of the comments I see frequently is that people expect that some toxic person is like, th- that they're going to change all or nothing. Like if that person changes 10%, that's still 10% better than yesterday. Yes. So, and it could be acceptable change. You know, it depends how many changes are required and who the people are in the relationship. And so many things, like I tell people so frequently, they say, should I leave? You know, they'll ask in a Facebook group or, or whatever. They say, well, should I leave? I don't know. I don't know who you are. I don't know what the circumstances are. I don't know what your finances are. I don't know who rules the finances. I don't know what your religious beliefs are. I don't know what the ages of your children are, the stages of your children. (laughs) I don't know any of those things. And there is no blanket reason except for physical and sexual abuse to leave. And then I tell people, unless there's physical and sexual abuse, Let's do your own work first. Exactly. Right? Because you have been feeling repressed, constrained, pushed back, less than in the relationship. Let's bring you back to equal and empower you to be in an equal place. So your thought patterns and your strategies and the words you use, all of that are actually accurate for who you want to represent as a person with a particular set of values and purposes, mission, beliefs. And when you are practiced in that way and you are caught up to speed, maybe tried some new things, then we can make a determination of what's possible, looking at the relationship and see what happened as a result of your growth. Now, that's not putting the blame on the person who wants to leave, but if you are in a toxic relationship that basically the other person has no interest in changing or hearing you, they are not interested in how they hurt you, that they are making you emotionally or physically ill by being in the relationship, that's what I'm talking about in toxic relationships. So a very important piece to look at there is who am I in the relationship, as you're suggesting? Uh, Are there strategies that I could improve that would make me feel more empowered and make me feel more in alignment with who I want to be and how I want to present myself? And then to look at the effect. What effect does it have when I change my words, when I use a talk shift? So what's your wisdom on you trying the talk shifts and the other person makes no shift at all. 
so I, I don't, admittedly, I don't think that that's uh, likely. I mean, the, the, the things, I think with the challenges that, and we find, I think I find this with my children. I even find it. So is, I think one of the most powerful things is really focusing on reinforcing the behavior we want, right? Especially when we're in a toxic relationship, it's like, oh, you, maybe you made a change. The, the other person made a little change, but then we're like, oh, you know, you weren't, you weren't as good as I wanted it to be, right? Versus saying, hey, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. So starting to kind of give positive reinforcement to the behaviors that we'd like to see more of. And I would almost be like, go through like a, a criticism you know, a criticism diet, like just, Hey, how could I go through the next week? Not criticizing this person at all, just giving them positive feedback and mm-hmm. seeing how the, the little subtle things change over time. Um, and so I think that that is probably one of the, one, one of the most important things as we're starting to change. And, and then another thing that I found, and this was probably with myself, um, people who I met five, six, seven years ago, 10 years ago, when I was a very different person, one of the challenges I think we all have is that when people do change, uh, we, we, we need to give them the opportunity to say, can, can we see them as they are and stop seeing who they were, right? We, we don't, you know, if, if I change or if any of your listeners start to change, uh, we, we, it's difficult when we know, oh, somebody knows me from 10 years ago, and but they can't see that I've changed. Well, you might be in a relationship with someone who is changing a little bit before your very eyes, and they feel the exact same way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I can hear my listeners going, what? <laughs> because what happens is that you may make a change that makes them fearful and they get more difficult. And so these are things that have to be constantly calibrated all the time. So before our time is up, and we have so much more we could talk about, but I, I want to also get in a couple of things about the book. You talk in there about autonomy raises, which you say can be more effective than a pay raise. Uh, and I think that that applies also to relationships because it increases the trust factor. What do you think? I, I, I Every single one of the talk, 22 talk shifts can be used in a personal relationship or in a work relationship. I agree that autonomy, if you're in a, if you're in a relationship with a controlling partner, like asking them how much autonomy do you think that you grant me? on a scale of one to 10 can be a great conversation. And when they say nine and you say, well, I kind of feel like a three over here. Now we can start talking about, well, why do you say a nine? And I say a three. Mm-hmm. And again, the caveat, if you are with a hijackal, they're going to say a nine. Great. I'll work on that other one. Uh, <laughs> it's just to make sure I have ultimate control. So, um, so I'm clear that, the 22 talk shifts can be used in any relationship and so important. Um, You also say in the book that many leaders resort to criticism. Why do you think that's true? I think that, well, what I found as a leader is that it was, I felt like it was my job to tell people what they did wrong. Right. And so otherwise, if I was just telling people what they did right, like how was I improving? But I also found that most of the reason why I was telling people what they did wrong was because I was trying to make myself feel better about my own contributions, right? So uh, admittedly, that was probably the biggest shift, especially with my children, to not be constantly criticizing them and pointing out what they did wrong and focusing instead on what they did right. Uh, 
And I do give some specific words. Like for me, it was actually very difficult just to even, I didn't even know the words. Like, how do you tell someone good job? Right. Cause I didn't want to be like one of those kind of cheerleaders, like, Hey, uh, you know, I'm not giving you. So, and for me, it was sometimes as simple as saying, Hey, I really appreciate what you did. Mm-hmm. Thank you for and what being you did. specific yeah, about well, what it was, because that feedback is very important that they were seen, they were noticed. And now you're acknowledging and appreciating them. Yeah. And I did admittedly, I think even for some of the things of saying, Hey, I really appreciate what you did. Of course, it's better if it's specific, but for me, it was, uh, I, I started, this was before I left the CEO. I actually started to just say, I'm going to only, I, I would have a diary. I'd write down like, what are three things that I can say positive things to people? Like when I see them in the hallways. Mm-hmm. And so I actually like did an experiment. And so it was really when I started to see people behave differently by using only positive reinforcement. that I said, Oh, there's really something here. Uh, admittedly, well, I didn't, I wasn't doing that at home until I kind of, you know, until years <laughs> later. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it, it, it reduces the lack of safety. You know, we don't like to be hit and a criticism is a hit. It's a paper cut, right? And mm-hmm. sometimes it can be a knife wound. And so we avoid places that are going to wound us. So when you make a shift into catching people doing something right is what I tell my people to do. When you make that shift, then people eventually begin to think, can I trust this? And then they start to reduce their feelings of not being safe around you. And then they're free because of what we're talking about, anger arousal. You know, if we go into alert, our body is not fully functioning. Our brain is not fully functioning. So if I'm walking around thinking, what are they going to complain about now? What Have I made a mistake? Who doesn't like me today? I've already got a little shutdown going on. So well, you think- you allow people to reach their full potential when you see the great contributions they make, large or small. And I think that, like you know, as a CEO, and I think a lot of leaders, um, you know, we rise through the ranks. So we get positive. Feel- like while my father, who was my boss, never told me good job. I mean, I saw the numbers. I mean, we went from a million dollar company to a thirty million dollar company. Like so. That was my feedback. I knew that I was doing a good job because there were external factors and customers said good job and things like that. But too often, sometimes the leaders are like, well, why do they need to have like all this positive feedback? Well, the challenge is often the people who work for us don't have that. They're not the person who got five promotions in the last 10 years. Right. Right. And they need that positive reinforcement more so than the people who have risen to the top. Absolutely. And and that's how, you know, if you look at kind of the masses, and especially if you look at what maybe, you know, maybe they did grow up in a a traumatic childhood where their parents had said that they've never actually had that opportunity to have someone say, hey, wow, that was amazing what you did. Yeah. Like employees, like in some cases, like literally can tear up when a leader that they respect says, wow, that was so amazing what you did. And when you're the leader who brings that person to that, like that's that that for me was the point that actually kind of being able to have that positive impact on people's lives in terms of their you know emotional and growth, that was probably the thing that really caused me to shift. 
Yeah, and you know, it brings to mind a quote, Krista, um, the, J- William James, who's considered the founder of modern psychology, he said, the deepest craving of the human nature is the desire to be appreciated. And, you know, appreciation is free, folks. <laughs> it costs you nothing to appreciate another human. And so that's a great place for us to to make that talk shift and to let people sit with what you've shared with them so that they can integrate it. My guest today is Christian Ungerbach. And what is important about this work as you're listening is that when you have toxic situations, not so much toxic people, but toxic situations with people, these talk shifts are going to be extremely important for any relationship. So you can find more about Krista at Krista.com. Easy. K K R I S T E R. Very straightforward. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you very much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Such good information. Make sure to go to Christer.com and enjoy what's there for you. Get a copy of his book and read that. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. You can always find me at 4, F-O-R, Relationship Help, H-E-L-P.com. Also go to my YouTube channel, same name, 4 Relationship Help. I'm so glad you spent this time with me. And as usual, treat yourself very well because you matter. Talk soon. Thank you for joining me on the Save Your Sanity podcast today. I hope you've had some new insights, some ideas and strategies to help you gain clarity and confidence for moving forward toward greater emotional health and safety. You deserve that. And so do your children. If you found value here and would like to support this podcast with a dollar or five each month, please do so at patreon.com slash save your sanity. Learn more about how to work with me via video conference, join my optimized circles, or subscribe to this podcast on my YouTube channel at my website, transformingrelationship.com. Talk soon.